Welcome everybody. My name is Damien Shield and I'm the Senior Director at the Institute at the Center for Medical Simulation and we're an independent nonprofit focused on patient safety and simulation-based education in healthcare. We uh, do training locally and instructor courses internationally and during this COVID pandemic we uh, enacted this weekly webinar series to connect with all of you colleagues across the globe I'm so pleased to have Dr. Sasha Sabka here, a colleague and friend. Uh, Sasha will introduce himself a bit more thoroughly, but I'll just say that I know him to be a caring clinician and father and educator and uh, administrative leader at his institution. And I've had the pleasure of working with him and uh, connecting with him in three continents here in Boston where he's uh, been here with us at CMS, as well as the Harvard Macy program uh, in Australia, where we got a chance to brainstorm and cook up our joint collaboration between the Center for Medical Simulation and Ixtra, the simulation program at uh, RWTH. And uh, of course, I've gotten a chance to visit him there in Aachen. So without further ado, Sasha, welcome. And uh, welcome to everybody. I'll um, let you know that my role will be to uh, moderate the comments. So we're gonna invite you to participate throughout the conversation today by clicking into the Q&A. The Q&A questions and answers chat box is there for you to interact with us. So do go ahead and use it both to give comments throughout the session as well as to ask questions. I'll be moderating those comments and bringing them live to Sasha so he can respond and react to your comments. And we'll be stopping the presentation a couple of times to do that. I connected with Sasha asking him to talk about this topic, which is quite passion, he's quite passionate about. And uh, we thought that at the end of the session, we're hopeful, at least for me, that I'm gonna understand the problem of the complexity of the interactions of management, managing different parts of the health system and describe how structured communication and checklists may uh, improve patient outcomes. And he insisted that we put it with a question mark. And so I'm very excited uh, to learn from Sasha and with you all uh, over the next uh, hour. So uh, I'll stop sharing my slides, Sasha, and hand over to you so that, uh, explicitly hand over to you so that you can introduce yourself, your program, and uh, what you have planned for us today. I'm not quite sure if we were talking about which checklist will we use for the handover, maybe. So maybe you have a suggestion, I'm not quite sure. Uh, thank you very much, Damien, for these very nice words. I'm pleased to be here, I'm pleased to be invited. And I'm starting to share my screen so you will be able um, to see over the next probably 25 to 30 minutes um, the different to topics I would like to address here. And as I said before, thank you, Damien, uh, for inviting me. Thank you to the CMS for this long-term collaboration together and for having the chance of learning together, exchanging information with the worldwide network. Um, I'm really pleased to be here. And I'm also pleased to having sometimes in life the next cappuccino in Brisbane together with you and exploring uh, great ideas. So thank you very much. And I'll let you know a little bit about my um, 
institution where I'm working. So I'm starting with the introduction of my institution. I'm working in Aachen, that's in Germany, very close to the border to the Netherlands and to Belgium. And our hospital is a university hospital covering all of the medical fields, uh, what, are, what, what are very well known to you. We have approximately 1,400 beds. We are, in Germany, we call that a maximum care provider. We have 36 specialized clinics, over 50,000 inpatient um, uh, cases or contacts and over 200,000 outpatients per year. We have over 800, uh, eight, not 800, we have 8,000 employees and everything is concentrated almost in one building. That's maybe very special if you compare the situation to other German university hospitals. 90% of all the activities and of all people are just in that one building and as exceptions are always confirming the <laughs> statement the training center what I'm directing is in this uh, building on your what you can see on your right side uh, we are a professionalized training center and a center for patient safety we have different um, simulation rooms covering the topic for many years and with uh, a few employees, we are trying to improve care um, in Germany and in Aachen. A little bit about my person. I'm an intending physician in anesthesiology as a specialist of anesthesiology, intensive care and emergency medicine, working probably over 15 years, 16 now in the healthcare system in Germany. I have a master's degree in um, medical education and I'm responsible for different areas of education, training and patient safety at my hospital and on national level here in Germany. And I declare that I have no conflict of interest by being financed of uh, pharma industry or something else for that, what I'm uh, talking about today. Um, I'll give you a short overview over the next 25 minutes. Um, in the introduction uh, of the topic, I will talk a little bit about the importance of patient outcomes related to patient safety and the human factor. Bringing up the topic of complexity in healthcare or of the healthcare systems. And we uh, together, and I'm inviting you very much, I hope that we can talk over this digital medium uh, about checklists, algorithms and interactions and what the meaning of them as elements is to patient safety and to patient outcome. After the discussion of the first part, we will focus a little bit more in detail on checklist and evidence, what, uh, what's existing in the literature. And then we will discuss about that. And the last but not least topic will be structured handovers. And probably until then, Damien and I will agree about which protocol we will use and what the discussion will be. So um, these are the next minutes and I'm inviting you to this, to this um, ride in the topic of uh, patient safety. So if we look at uh, the topic, what the WHO analysis said about Europe and patient safety aspects in the system, probably one of 10 patients is harmed in Europe. That's the statement of the WHO, um, is harmed by, while receiving care. It's a very neutral information. Um, 43 million patients um, or 43 million incidents are occurring every year in Europe and the costs of what happens related to medication errors are calculated by the WHO by 42 billion US dollars annually. 
And this is for me personally pretty impressive. So I was very curious to uh, look a little bit deeper into that information. And there were more statements what are really um, shocking me that um, if you analyze medical errors in hospitals or in healthcare providers, institutions and um, adverse events, in eight to 12% different sources are saying different um, values, but somewhere in between eight to 12% medical errors and adverse events occur while the patient is in hospital. Um, if we would apply more strategies to reduce adverse events only in the EU, we could prevent more than um, 750,000 medical errors, prevent around 3 million hospital days, and we could probably prevent um, over 90,000 deaths per year. And this is, it, it tells and it stands for itself. And comparing this to the German situation, um, I'm showing a slide from the German statistical um, authorities, what's, what's published in 2020. And unfortunately it's in German, but I will translate that for you. It says that we approximately have around 1 million of deaths in the healthcare system per year. And it analyzes the causes of deaths. And as you would probably expect, the cause of death number one are cardiovascular diseases, cancer on the second place, trauma and other things on the third and on the fourth place. But wait a second, we, we were talking about, about approximately 10% um, of, of deaths, as I mentioned before, per country in Europe were 100,000, approximately 100,000 deaths caused by medical errors. And we are not seeing them here in this classification. And this is something what's very important if we are analyzing um, um, patient safety related issues or issues to medical errors caused by the human factor. There is a study of um, Professor Macquery and uh, Daniel uh, published in the British Medical Journal in 2016 and that analyzes the situation in the US. Interestingly, it seems to be the number three of caused deaths in US. So medical errors are responsible this is what the study is telling us. Medical errors are responsible for the third, so for, for um, 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 a very, so they are responsible for the third leading cause of death in the US. And I think this is very impressive if we are talking about intervention, how to improve care, how to improve patient outcomes. And um, the study is very interesting. Um, it shares details about where this data is coming from. And it says something that the Institute of Medicine report from 1999 in the United States um, is talking about approximately 50 to 100,000 deaths annually caused by medical errors. Later on, the same authors published um, a few studies and a few analysis that probably even more deaths are caused by medical errors. And this is something what we have to mention if we are talking about using checklists, addressing complexity in medicine. So if I'm sharing something about challenges in the healthcare systems, we cannot ignore um, the following topics like demographic trends um, in, in Germany or in Western Europe or worldwide we have an increasing number of elderly patients. And these patients are becoming usually 
more complex to the system. On the other hand, we have another factor, factor that is responsible for complexity in healthcare, and this is the information quantity. If we are mentioning big data, and I think this term is not very well describing what we have, but we have so many information in the healthcare system, and it's so complicated to apply this information in a proper way to improve the patient outcome. We have the healthcare system costs, economical aspects, what, inf what are influencing human beings as medical experts. We have the complexity of the system in the qualification of people, and we have multi-professional and interdisciplinary collaboration as a topic, what challenges the healthcare system and what challenges uh, good care, as we are probably not always trained, not in every uh, country and not in every system, also in a multi-professional and interdisciplinary manner. So this could be a challenge to the system. So if we uh, just turning um, to the uh, um, human factor as a cause of errors in medicine, unfortunately, we will not, um, it will not happen <laughs> that a human becomes a machine and that a human will not make errors. So if we know this, um, it would be interesting which aspects of human factors are maybe responsible for medical errors and how can we address them? I identified a few areas like communication, decision-making, teamwork, process management, technology control. I hope that we still have the control of the technology. But if we are talking about uh, technology control, it's also um, offering challenges, how we can keep the control and how can we be uh, good enough to control technology, not to make uh, some medical errors and how to apply knowledge in complex environments. This would be the aspect. And um, if we have identified areas who, who are maybe responsible for medical errors and who are maybe causing deaths of our patients, what we, what we have to avoid, what we have to take very, very serious and not ignore these things with statistics who are not describing um, these causes of that. Um, we have to ask ourselves the question, is medicine so special? Are we the only discipline who is um, handling with these challenges and can we do something? Or can we maybe see similar problems in other areas? Can we learn from someone else? And for sure, as I'm guiding you, there is an answer. What can we learn from aviation? That was my question, what I had to myself. And um, at the beginning, I, I would like to describe a, a, um, a situation occurring maybe three to probably four months ago um, that was uh, on the right side, this airplane, an Airbus A320 what crashed um, on the 22nd May in 2020. And it was somewhere close to airport. Unfortunately, all, almost all um, passengers died. And by analyzing the situation, why the airplane crashed down and caused so many deaths, what maybe were um, avoidable, um, usually, um, there is analysis of a situation. And what, what they have seen analyzing this air crash was that the landing gear was still in retracted position in the moment the airplane was trying to land the first time. 
And uh, from this point, we don't, I as a non-expert in aviation, don't have the clear information, but there are some suggestions what could happen. And there are models in aviation who are analyzing these accidents. And Sheppel and Wiegmann, who are experts, US experts for linear accident analysis, like HFACS, they're often bringing up topics like complacency. And honestly, I have to tell you, I was not aware of this word and of this term in English. So a very good friend, a pilot from Lufthansa, who was also a psychologist, and as I mentioned, a very good friend of mine, he explained to me that the situation of pilots in, 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 in which they are is often that pilots are doing a boring job. And not at all. So not the whole job being a pilot is boring. No, not in total. Please don't understand me wrongly. But there are some procedures and some moments uh, and processes where you have to handle a very uh, yeah, easy handling situation with uh, many tasks and you have a high routine. So in this case, in this case or in these situations, um, people become... Um, unaware and they become negligent to um, that what happens. And one assumption coming back to the airport crash from this Pakistan Airlines uh, 8303 crash is that maybe the pilots just forgot to, um, um, to, to activate the gears for landing. And this caused many other things. And at the end, unfortunately, in the second attempt, um, landing what was uh, not good. So what can we learn from aviation? What we can learn is if you look at the um, illustration um, on your the right side um, at the graph at the right side on the monitor, what we can see from the 70s, um, probably we had um, uh, less than uh, 300 million passengers in the world flying by airplanes. What we had on the other hand was more than 1,500 deaths in aviation. And um, moving through that time um, until today, we have today probably more than four and a half billion patients in aviation flying every day, exceptionally in Corona times. And we have only in 2018 and 2017, probably uh, something like 200 to 400 deaths per year. And this is not just happened or that this that not happened just by occasion. This is just happening because um, aviation is taking very seriously human behaviors and human factors and they are uh, training people and they are adapting checklists and they are um, using structured protocols and handovers uh, for making aviation safe. What we are missing are sometimes transferable studies and reliable data um, just to apply this knowledge to medicine. An interesting book is the Checklist Manifesto. Probably all of you who are here uh, read that book or probably many of you know about this book. It's, it's written by Atul Gavande. It's a surgeon uh, from Boston um, working on the Harvard Medical School. I know that he's an endocrinology surgeon. And um, he is talking in his book about the, the, the using checklists in medicine. 
and he entered many personal experiences and a lot of his very well conducted research and he identifies um, a few principles what cause failures in medicine like ignorance or ineptitude and making sure that that not happens he's um, um, saying that applying checklists to medicine makes uh, medicine safer and you will follow his thoughts very easily and very interestingly and i just can recommend this and this book is also describing that uh, there is a high resistance of uh, especially unfortunately physicians to apply checklists and um, we will look at this more detailed over the next minutes um, what else can we learn um, from um, aviation well, we can learn that probably more than 70 percent of all reported incidents are caused by the human factor so what happened in aviation i was mentioning that before is that mechanical mechanical errors are almost uh, today very low, probably not even more than five to 10% of the cases are caused by mechanical, um, ex mechanical errors. And the most of the errors are caused by the human factors. And there are different strategies what aviation is um, applying to its system to increase safety and to avoid um, errors. And on the institutional level, um, I would assume that aviation is probably 30 to 40 years ahead of us. And we have to identify that aviation is probably a little bit another field what has a few similarities where we can learn from. If you just explore, for example, that IATA white paper, uh, you can identify a few areas what are important for um, improving safety. And these are areas like safety awareness, senior management commitment, communication, culture, learning organization, management commitment, policies, processes, and procedures, reporting and feedback. And I will say, and I will try to um, show that many of these experts and many of these areas are probably covered with using a checklist or a structured handover. So um, almost at the end of the first part, um, my suggestion is, and the suggestion from the literature is that many checklists, what we know, are very helpful to improve care of our patients and could avoid medical errors. Two examples, what I am uh, showing here, one is the ABCDE approach, what could serve as a checklist by providing uh, emergency care to the patient. And the other hand is the surgical safety checklist from the working group from Gavande. Um, what, um, has shown by publishing it and uh, doing that research and publishing it in the New England Journal, um, evidence for reducing medical errors. So I'm inviting you to a short break um, to um, discuss the topic with me and uh, Damien will probably now take over and moderate the discussion. And I hope that we maybe have also some input um, to the questions, to the Q&A, what we can talk about or answer. Thank you so much for your presentation so far, Sasha, and bringing this idea uh, of complacency and, and boredom, because uh, I usually think my job is pretty interesting, uh, but bringing those two topics up makes me think 
it would be very interesting to think about what might be moments in our work for those of you who are clinicians or who have spent significant time within health systems to be able to kind of help us think through specifics if you don't mind putting in the q a moments in your work that you think are high risk for complacency or potentially boring and uh for me i'll start that lens of is it boring uh or am i just expecting it to go well um makes perfect sense like discharging a patient which i know is high risk is potentially pretty boring uh, handing off a patient into the hospital or to a the oncoming team i feel like the interesting part of the work is already done the handover is kind of secondary so i could see that psychology in play i'd love to get a few comments from the audience in terms of how you're making sense of what sasha is presenting and if you have any questions about what he said so far that you highlight for it. And Sasha, I'll read here for, for you and so the other folks who are watching the recording. So um, interprofessional education and interprofessional care will definitely contribute largely to patient safety. Um, what's the role of clarifying and communicating for interprofessional care? That's one question. Um, I think that's very interesting because I think we generally think of professions as self-regulating. And so I could imagine different silos creating checklists for themselves and creating checklists across professions to be quite challenging. And uh, someone else is saying, when the intensity is over, how do I, uh, when I quote, know how to do it, is when it's easy to become complacent. So I, I think they, they are saying, um, yeah, once I'm no longer problem solving and I think I'm on the glide slope to use an aviation, that seems like high risk. They don't give any specific example, uh, but I could think of, um, uh, I know from my practice, I think I, I could think of the initial diagnostics as a more, um, intense moment, but then once the plan is in place, it seems more straightforward. Do you have examples from your practice as an intensivist or anesthetist, Sasha, where you could say, okay, this is, this is an easy area to become complacent? Oh, yes, totally. So if you think about the induction of anesthesia, um, I'm always comparing as on the picture, so thank you for that question, um, anesthesia procedure with a flight. As we are starting the flight, the most, one of the most critical points in providing care are occurring. And that's the same in aviation. As we are starting the plane, the start of the plane is one of the most complex situations where you really have, be, have to be aware. But doing it every day or probably providing anesthesia, in my case, every day and doing 10 inductions of anesthesia per day, I had many situations where I forgot something, even if it's totally clear. And I have to remind myself always, put a checklist on the board with very big written letters. Do not forget this, this, this. Have you prepared succinyl choline if you use it or have you done this or have you done this? We, you know, I, um, I could talk about many situations where we forgot something. 
because of that phenomenon called complacency. And I have to say with a checklist, it would be more helpful. And also I have to add, if I would train myself or if I would be trained addressing a checklist, also using the checklist, it would be even more helpful to me. So this is one part. And I think there was a question about communication interprofessionality, how we can maybe realize a better communication through a checklist. And I think the surgical safety checklist, I don't know if I understood the question properly, because if you were talking about silos, every mm -hmm. profession or everyone is designing checklists for themselves, the best uh, um, example was the surgical safety checklist would address a multi-professional team. And there are some topics in the checklist what are bringing in a profession like the nurses who had to say something or have to say, you know, like these speaking up moments. But if you have a checklist who's regulating that screaming anesthesiologist, I'm an anesthesiologist in the room, um, if he has to, sorry for the expression, shut up and let others speak, I think this is very helpful. And others could contribute with their observations of the situation. So, um, Sasha, from the comments again, uh, there's a participant that's saying, well, if I have seven cases in the OR, I wonder if a checklist might be more useful early in the day when I'm getting into the routine, that my editorial, more so than later. And to follow that up, they said, you know, because sometimes going through the checklist itself can be boring. Yes. So that's kind of, that seems like a potential double-edged sword where you implement a solution that creates a new problem. I'll just exactly. give you two more comments be, and, uh, and then I'll let you go on with your presentation or not let you, but invite you. Um, monitoring stable patients under anesthesia risk complacency yet demands the capacity to, develop, to detect subtle aberrations. Um, so I guess the question there is to what extent do you, how do you decide when to let things be or keep on checking? And um, uh, another person says, uh, share, sharing from a different um, domain says if useful, in a rock climbing, a significant number of accidents happen after the climb is over when vigilance drops. So he's curious how Sasha modulates his attention across the day in the operating theater. Um, how do you integrate that into some checklist? Um, so I'll just uh, hop off screen here and let you um, take those questions. Thank you very much. Uh, so um, keeping my, uh, being aware the whole day, it's sometimes really difficult by monitoring a patient. If you have just one operation over the day and everything seems to be good and the patient is just in a very good condition. In this case, a checklist could be very helpful. Maybe a checklist could uh, digitally show up every hour or every half hour and raising up the awareness by checking is your blood pressure, your frequency and your saturation still in your green, um, green level, uh, so, so in the desirable level where it should be. Or have you checked the hemoglobin still? And maybe also a checklist with the question asking the other profession, the surgeon, okay, are we still good? Is there any bleeding what I maybe cannot see? Um, over the operation situs 
these kind of questions would be probably helpful, but are probably still not addressed in the common checklist. But there are some of these aspects who are addressed. And maybe by presenting now a little bit more in detail, check the topic checklist, you will see what I mean. So I would, um, if, if, if you allow, continue with the presentation by addressing uh, the surgical safety checklist and the topics um, related to checklists in, in medicine. So if you see an example of the surgical safety checklist provided by the World Health Organization and composed by the uh, surgical safety um, initiative um, led by Arthur Adol Gawande and other people in this team, you, you will see a 19-item checklist what is addressing exactly the situation in the hospital where the patient is just before the induction of the anesthesia, before the skin incision, and very close after the operation is finished. So we are capturing this moment where the patient is operated. Um, there is a study published in 2009 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I think this was the icebreaker in my um, um, understanding. There are a lot of more studies who are talking and investigating the um, using checklists in medicine, but this study published in the New England Journal was really very important to the acceptance and also saying something, providing data about how checklists are improving patient outcome and saving lives. So if you think that in the world, um, uh, we have annually probably uh, 200 34 million operations in the world. And these operations are really very important. Not only elective um, emergency operation, every operation is captured here under these assumption of 234 million. And, and if you hear that the half of the adverse events in these operations is avoidable, you really start to think, okay, I have to start now with using these uh, checklists and I have to compose or adapt the, the checklist directly into my environment. And I already provided you in a very important information. Usually you have to adapt the checklist into your hospital or into your environment. That's the uh, first step of how you do the implementation process of the checklist. This study um, um, conducted by Haynes et al. It was a worldwide study with over 8,000 patients. It was a WHO study supported by the WHO and um, um, their um, checklist content, as I already mentioned, were the moments before anesthesia begins, um, prophylaxis against infection, effective teamwork. All this is in the content of the checklist used, so different aspects were captured with the checklist. The checklist had consisted of 19 items, um, and these 19 items are probably easier to fill out than another checklist with more than 100 items, what probably will not have the same compliance as a 19-item checklist. It's just one of the aspects. We had primary endpoints in the study. So there were uh, major complications during the post-operative phase, including death, and the phase uh, of investigation were, max, uh, were 30 days. What, were the, what were, were the results of the study? 30 days after surgery, um, they could detect um, a, a, a significantly reduced mortality and death rate. So um, the death rates was reduced about 0.7%. And this, is, this seems to be not too much. 
But if you think about these 234 uh, millions of operations, um, and if you think about how many um, deaths could be avoided, it's something around 1 million deaths what could be avoided worldwide by using a checklist. And this is totally convincing to me. So with reading this in the study published in 2009, probably my hospital should have the, 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 the checklist already uh, the next day, but, but it's not so easy as it sounds. Rate of complications was also significantly reduced in the tremendous number of complications could be avoided during um, operations if we would use a checklist. So um, still unclear after this study what uh, um, was um, distributed over the world and provided in um, nine different hospitals. Um, still unclear was what was the effect, what was really responsible for reducing the mortality and the complications rate. So the exact mechanism was not detected and until the end it's still unclear if it was due to the checklist items or maybe due to the um, increased awareness of making errors what uh, the checklist um, increased by just using the checklist. So um, you can find if you're exploring the literature after 2009, more very valuable and very interesting studies. Here um, I'm presenting now the SERPES study provided by the Fries et al. Um, and published in 2010. It's a national study in the Netherlands. And the study was about, um, it, it was an observational study, what was targeting the entire surgical pathway. Um, the authors of that study had the hypothesis that probably more than 50% of the complications um, cause it in, in, in while operation or cause it caused with an operation were, were occurring outside of the OR. So before and after the OR and therefore they tried to address the whole process of the operation. So the whole perioperative process with 124 item checklist. And as I'm telling you that someone is trying to establish a 124 item checklist, probably a few of you uh, who are listening to this and who were reading that study were thinking, okay, who the heck will fill out that checklist? So what the authors have done, they divided the checklist in different moments and they used seven time points focusing on different um, um, fields of the surgical pathway and that was the way how the checklist was divided and accomplished. Um, at the end, in the participating hospitals, many processes as a result were optimized. Um, the primary endpoints were similar to the other study uh, provided by Gavande, um, that were the number of complications and in-hospital mortality. And also in this studies, study, the results of the surgical safety checklist could be confirmed. So um, the total number of complications decreased from 27% to 16.7 and the hospital mortality also for 0.7%. And this was a strong confirmation for the study results of the study, um, what I was talking about before. And um, now we have even more um, um, pressure to use checklists uh, 
while surgery is occurring. And all of these um, checklists are addressing multi-professional aspects, uh, multiple layers of the whole process, and probably addressing many aspects you already brought up, addressing communication, um, addressing awareness of people, complacency, and different other things. Still not solved was the problem, is the checklist, is the usage of the checklist a black box, where we don't know is the checklist itself responsible or uh, maybe the awareness what the checklist raises up for the improved patient outcome. And this study uh, from the freeze at all um, gave a little bit more clarity about that with reduced compliance to the checklist, the results were totally not the same. So if people were not filling out more than 80 or 90% of the checklist, the results could not be reproduced. So that's, this is one of the very important conclusions of that. Annals of Surgery in 2012, um, um, a researcher group around um, Arnold van Klei published also a study also using the WHO surgical safety checklist with 90 items. And um, they tried to investigate the aspect if um, the completion of the checklist is responsible um, for the improved patient outcome or maybe the overall awareness uh, of patient safety issues. It was also a retrospective cohort study, an observational study, and no randomized control trial. And as I'm bringing up that topic that this was no randomized controlled trial, um, you will also later on see what is still topic to of the discussion if this is enough evidence for using checklists everywhere, as it is still a, a critical discussion. In the Annals of Surgery study um, in 2012 from the Van Clay, also the in-hospital mortality was the primary endpoint. 30 days after surgery, we had uh, observed, or they had observed 25,000 adult patients. And also this study showed a significant decrease of the in-house mortality of the operation mortality from 3.1 to 2.8%. I'm not going deeper into the statistics, but you can be sure these um, results were verified and are representable. So this study as a conclusion identified that checklist compliance is probably um, the most important factor for um, influencing patient outcome. And addressing the topic what we are talking about today, um, a very important take home message is that using the checklist compliance as a performance indicator for multidisciplinary teams could really help in um, improving the patient outcome. Um, still unclear, even after the study, if what is the relationship between mortality, post-operative mortality and safety culture, as well as human factors uh, that was still not investigated and too complex for this study. One interesting thing at the end, <clears throat> or last but not least, um, one study, what is published in 2010 in JAMA, um, evaluated the application of, um, or the association between implementation of a team training program and surgical mortality. 
and why I'm talking about this as it seems that this is a complete different topic. No, it's not. The team training program contained using of checklists, briefings, debriefings, addressing the communication in the OR and addressed training and preparation of the whole teams as an interprofessional training. And what a surprise. Interestingly, analyzing the data of over 180,000 procedures, um, there was a strong evidence for um, reducing mortalities, um, reducing mortality in hospitals where this team training approach was realized and implemented. So particip participation of these um, uh, hospitals to the medical team training uh, approach resulted in lower surgical mortality rates. And with this, we have clear evidence for using checklists. So what to do now? The literature is more than eight years old. Every one of us probably should now use checklists. Otherwise, we are doing something wrong to our patient. Isn't it like this? Usually I would ask you now this, but um, <laughs> if I'm talking like this, Unfortunately, there is another study in the New England Journal published in the year um, 2014 or 13, sorry, uh, 2014. And it's about the introduction and application of surgical safety checklists. And the, the, the checklist, what was used is the um, WHO checklist. And unfortunately, by analyzing data of more than 200,000 interventions, it could not be shown in this study from Ontario and Canada with probably more than 100 hospitals participating in that study that any effect on mortality or reducing complications could be shown. So with this results, it puts, um, with this result, we have a little bit of uncertainty about what was shown in 2009 and 10 with a clear evidence is there for using checklists, what are reducing um, complications and deaths. And now in 2014, a group around David Erbach is showing, no, it's not. What to do with this information? If we look deeper into that publication, we will see that the last investigation was just done by taking a checklist without any, um, without any other measurement, like with a, miss, a missing comprehensive approach, only the checklist was provided to these hospitals. No trainings, no awareness increasing about using a checklist, no explanation, no communication about that checklist was additionally um, done in the hospitals. And this um, led to the authors conclude that if we want to see a beneficial effect of a checklist, we have to train people how to use a checklist. And this is what was a, a real conclusion in this um, article published in 2014. So back to you again, back to your questions. I hope that uh, <laughs> with showing this um, part, it didn't uh, distract you from um, that topic and you're still um, intended to use checklists. This is great, Sasha, because I think I really had that question. So is it the checklist? Is it the implementation? Is it the compliance? And I, I think you're showing us that compliance matters, but it's not just the checklist. There's something around the checklist, like training and 
the cultural habits of using it and probably the uh, good feeling around it. And this, of course the systems level change. Because we only have about 12 minutes less, Sasha, I would propose we carry on. And yes, um, I would just share with you from the Q&A so far that people are also interested in how does hierarchy and teams behave here or is the checklist somehow some kind of a mediator there as well and then there was a suggestion around a daily written plan so habits that people could take to do your own checklist it seems so i like that suggestion I think these were from before uh, but i just wanted to give you that and mm -hmm. i think as you carry on with your uh, presentation here we'll just keep the q a open so folks can just comment as they go along for the so that we have uh, their opinions and questions for the final uh, wrap-up so okay thank you very much thank you, from there. <clears throat> thank you i understand very much and i will take care about the time trying to still make it understandable for you and not to run over the slides so if you address medical handovers uh, we can see that handovers occur in the hospital in many many um, situations and that we have different layers or different levels where um, handovers occur and where we are performing uh, um, handovers between personal between situations and the systems so missing literature about that i was missing literature about uh, uh, the influence of structured handovers on um, the patient outcome until 2010 or 2013, where you can find this wonderful work from Amy Starmer from Boston. And she's talking or she's investigating the influence of um, implementing handovers or here in this case, in this study from JAMA published in December 2013, um, implementing a resident handoff bundle that's addressing standardized communication and handoff training, verbal mnemonics, new team handover structure, and computerized handoff tools. So as we are talking about checklists and now talking about handovers, what can happen is, or how you can do or structure handovers is with checklists. So we have a maybe pretty similar situation or a comparable um, situation where you can use a checklist to structure handovers. And also here, um, you will see that this is a more holistic approach than just um, providing a checklist for doing a handover. Um, this would be the very easy situation, but probably absolutely do not influence any outcome probably it will even make your handover worse because people are not trained and not informed how to use a checklist. And Amy Starmer and the team use that very holistic or comprehensive approach for improving communication and handovers. And they received or they, um, uh, they um, found, have found very interesting results by analyzing over a thousand patient missions in a pre-post design and analyzing more than 80 resident um, reports uh, before and after in pediatric units. So the outcomes were um, rates of medical errors and preventable adverse events, as we are the whole time talking about them. Uh, they were written handoffs who were analyzed and the physician workflow. So they analyzed the time, what was uh, spended by doing the handovers, and um, they analyzed the quality of the verbal handoffs. 
And very interestingly, after the intervention, by uh, providing that holistic approach, medical errors decreased significantly and also the preventable adverse events. So even more, um, the data, what was already shown with using uh, and investigating, investigating usage of checklists, uh, this study of structuring handovers and offering a training program for handovers is even more showing that medical errors decrease and also the preventable adverse events. What was very interesting, I think there was something like a question about that. What they found is that significant reductions of um, some categories in written handovers, what were important to the quality, what were, what were contributing to the quality of documents, if they had no computerized tool, two of 14 categories uh, were um, improved or a reduction of, uh, of um, errors were detected. And if they used the computerized tool in 11 categories, they could detect some improvements. So this is bringing up the theory that, or the idea that maybe digital um, um, systems could support our handovers by structuring them and making them even better. Okay, uh, stepping to the next um, article, and I'm really presenting this data as we usually, and that this is really by intention and not to just cite some articles. I think in my life, what I, I was, even years ago, very confident that structured handovers and checklists would improve patient care. My, my uncertainty about that um, topic was just, is there enough data? What is really showing that it helps, that it proves the, uh, the, the, the um, decreased mortality rates or errors or not? And by presenting this study from the New England Journal also, um, conducted by the group around Amy Starmer, um, um, even more evidence will be shown to you for using structured um, handovers. So what they have done in this study, what they have done um, analyzing nine hospitals and implementing a resident handoff uh, program, um, similar like in the approach before, they have analyzed more than 10,000 patients uh, applying a checklist called IPASS, what addresses different um, um, topics. They um, found that medical errors and preventable adverse events were significantly reduced. The quality of written and oral handover is, were improved significantly. And one of the most criticized moments, because this program, um, if you just listen to the presentation, it seems to be a lot of an investation. Investi um, 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 investment. And um, on one side, it is an investment in hospital. And on the other side, if you have someone who is criticizing this, maybe it could come up that someone is saying, okay, it will probably uh, disrupt the workflow. It would probably prolong the um, handovers, but it's not. Also shown in the study that the timing of the handoffs is not prolonged and the quality improved. So what else can we wish if we are doing this? And as a con conclusion of all um, these um, handover studies, what uh, um, um, I present, presented or I will present is that they're really improving um, the handover um, and um, decreasing, um, decreasing medical errors. Um, last but not least, 
in the um, short time that is left, um, a study in 2012 um, conducted by Gravel et al. Um, what is um, addressing the handover process between the OR and the intensive care unit. Um, and the study was about transferring patients um, after pediatric cardiac surgery as a very complex process, and uh, two methods were compared. So they um, evaluated a verbal handoff as a very common procedure versus a structured handoff um, with the checklist. And um, not surprisingly, if you have followed the last uh, minutes also here, it could be shown that uh, oops, uh, there was a significant degrees of postoperative uh, complication. What was a very hard outcome parameter, more, more clear than maybe, um, okay, a medical error occurred where we didn't have the direct influence on some uh, patient outcome. But here they could measure that postoperative complications were significantly decreased and that the number of the early extubations as one of the um, success markers um, were uh, increased. So I will directly come to discussion and I hope that our handovers will not look like this. <laughs> and I'm pretty happy to receive some questions and I apologize myself for being over the time. So I had to skip over a little bit of uh, the details. Well, this is great, Sasha. Thank you. And um, you, you're all invited to um, share in the Q&A. I think, uh, Sasha, we, can, we have a comment there that uh, people do believe that structured checklists uh, will help us do safe handoffs. And so, um, so I think that's, that's where I'm at, I think. Um, just wondering what to do, you know, do I force myself to use iPass in my setting, even uh, we've implemented it electronically. Um, and so that's been a nice addition. So it's, it's in the uh, local discussion, but it's really just for when we can avoid a phone call by writing the iPass. But if I'm doing a handover at rounds or with a specialty that's not using the electronic iPass, should I be handing a patient the way I do routinely, or should I be using iPasses? Is, or do you just not, or do we not think it's a personal decision and individual clinicians should not be making this call themselves? It's really at the systems level. What's your take on that? So my take home message for you from the experience I have now with reviewing these articles, reading that, comparing it, and working on that topic for a longer time is really the individual approach is totally helpful. And the individual approach by using a checklist could be helpful and a very important and it has to integrate itself into the system. So probably it doesn't help. It could even, it could even um, interrupt the process if everyone is using an individual checklist. If it's not um, um, adapted to the situation, probably to the individual situation, but not to the situation of the process I'm taking care. And I'm, as a physician, it doesn't matter in which role, I'm always a part of a process. So I should be, if I'm investing time for implementing checklists, I should contribute to the institution by helping the institution implementing a more holistic approach or a comprehensive approach 
of using checklists, regardless of if I'm using checklists for handovers or for other procedures. And let me ask you one final follow-up question, which is, so what is the role of training and simulation in That's the implementation important. of a checklist? I can make a, a crucial role as people, as, as you get the checklist, and if you receive 124 items checklist, probably not everyone, and I would assume that probably 80% of the people would not be able to use the checklist in a proper and intended way. So what can we do, we as educators, we as the people who are providing simulation and debriefing, I think it's very important to close the loop, to iteratively train people how to use checklists and also to exclude mistakes and improperly use checklists by simplifying them, making them less complex and decreasing the resistance level what usually professionals have. Well, certainly, certainly if your health system uses checklists, I think we should not be designing simulation scenarios that don't have them because I think exactly. that, could, that could put us working against a, uh, a system that's trying to take uh, flight, if you allow me to extend your, uh, your analogy. And yeah, exactly. So if you look at what can we learn from other industries, if you see, if you look at aviation, if you look at, I had an example where we used uh, this pit stops from cars where teams from Ferrari are working together. If you analyze the situation, 24 people are taking care and maintaining a car in probably five seconds and everything is maintained at the end and they are following checklists. That's evident. And how can they realize following a checklist in five seconds by training? And these people are probably more training to use the checklist than really working in the real environment. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for uh, your time here and your thoughtful review and presentation. For me, it really helped me uh, go deeper into a topic that I too have been thinking about and uh, haven't spent as much time as you uh, exploring and it uh, certainly opens my eyes to trying to do more in the area. Thank you others who uh, joined here. I invite you to keep in touch with us and connect directly if you're interested in connecting with Sasha through his Twitter account or myself uh, or anyone here at CMS, please do so. Also join us next week for the open forum, Ask Anything. Several of the faculty uh, from CMS and our affiliates will be taking your questions live. Looking forward to that conversation. We have a program in December I'm excited about for the important skill of feedback giving and receiving, entering a feedback conversation. I like that we titled it Up Your Feedback Game because we always have something to get better at and it promises to be an interesting situation led by Janice Palaganis, our trusted colleague. And uh, we've got several other programs online in addition to our weekly webinar. So check out our website, join us as you can. We'd love to see you and we'd love to stay connected. Um, for most of you, hope to see you next week, if not uh, on Twitter in advance. Sasha, thank you very much again. And thank I look forward to much. talking to you later. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here and bye-bye. Take care.